Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Richard Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 28th through Saturday, October 30th feature guest conductor Manfred Honeck and pianist Denis Matsuev. The program includes the first Chicago Symphony Orchestra performances of Coincident Dances by composer-in-residence Jesse Montgomery. Also on the program, Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 3 and Schubert's Unfinished, the Symphony No. 8. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Jesse Montgomery's Coincident Dances, music lasting about 12 minutes. In June, shortly after Jesse Montgomery was named the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's new Mead composer-in-residence, the orchestra played her music for the first time, strum, music for strings that is rooted in American folk tradition and governed by the spirit of dance. Her three-year appointment began July 1st. Picked by music director Ricardo Muti, she'll be commissioned to write three new works for the orchestra, one for each of her three seasons in the post. The first of them, slated for an April premiere, will be conducted by Muti himself. Like her immediate predecessors in the post, including most recently Missy Mazzoli, she's heavily involved in guiding the orchestra's Music Now series, curating its programs of new works and writing music for it as well. The first concert she has planned will be presented Monday, November 1st in Orchestra Hall. It was the Music Now series, then under Mazzoli's direction, that introduced her string quartet Breakaway to Chicago audiences two years ago. A native of New York City, Montgomery started violin lessons at the Third Street Music School Settlement. She now holds degrees from the Juilliard School in violin and New York University, a master's in composition for film and multimedia, and works on her doctorate from Princeton University. Since 1999, she's been closely involved with Sphinx, a Detroit-based nonprofit organization that supports young African-American and Latinx string players. Montgomery has devoted her career to working with young artists and musicians with diverse backgrounds and ideas, and she's known for immersing herself in the activities of the new music community, all of which she will continue in Chicago. Montgomery is also keenly aware that she will be working in the hometown of Florence Price. She calls her the godmother of black music, whose music the Chicago Symphony introduced in a history-making evening in 1933 when music director Frederick Stock premiered her Symphony No. 1. This spring, Montgomery will participate in the activities surrounding the orchestra's first performances of Price's Symphony No. 3 under Muti's baton. Montgomery's plate is full and overflowing. As the New York Times reported in a profile of Montgomery in September, it's estimated that her orchestral scores will be performed nearly 400 times this year. This past summer, Bard Summerscape opened with the premiere of I Was Waiting for the Echo of a Better Day, a site-specific full-length dance work with choreography by Pam Tanowitz. She's also had premieres at the Sun Valley Music Festival in Utah and the Grand Teton Music Festival in Wyoming. In 2020, she was named to the Metropolitan Opera Lincoln Center Theater New Works Commissioning Program, one of three black composers picked in what was widely seen as a welcome reboot to one of America's most tradition-bound institutions. One can learn a lot about Montgomery by considering her music, the reasons she composes, the sensibilities she advocates. 
In Banner, Montgomery's signature tribute to the 200th anniversary of the Star-Spangled Banner from 2014, she addresses the question, what does an anthem for the 21st century sound like in today's multicultural environment? In Montgomery's hands, it's an exploration of the divides that slice through American culture. For most Americans, the song represents a paradigm of liberty and solidarity against fierce odds. And for others, it implies a contradiction between the ideals of freedom and the realities of injustice and oppression. Her whole catalog is animated by that kind of attention to the world around her. Montgomery makes art that is firmly set in the present, which would not be notable today in theater or fiction, for example, but stands out in the world of classical music, which has for so long lived largely in the European past. Coincident Dances, a score from 2017, makes an ideal introduction to her works as a reflection of our many-faceted musical existence and as a kind of self-portrait, a New York day in the life of a young artist. But it also suggests that Montgomery possesses the rare gift of writing music that not only reflects the complexity of our world, but one that will lead us forward. By already forging her own distinct voice in a crowded musical scene, a voice that melds and marries many different influences, she is well positioned to help guide the music of our multicultural future. I've always been interested in trying to find the intersection between different types of music, she said. I imagine that music is a meeting place at which people can converse about their unique differences and common stories. And here are words by Jesse Montgomery on Coincident Dances. She writes, Coincident Dances is inspired by the sounds found in New York's various cultures, capturing the frenetic energy and multicultural oral palate one hears even in a short walk through a New York City neighborhood. The work is a fusion of several different sound worlds, English consort, samba, mbira dance music from Ghana, swing, and techno. My reason for choosing these styles sometimes stemmed from an actual experience of accidentally hearing a pair simultaneously, which happens most days of the week walking down the streets of New York, or one time when I heard a parked car playing Latin jazz while I had rhythm and blues in my headphones. Some of the pairings are merely experiments. Working in this mode, the orchestra takes on the role of a DJ of a multicultural dance track. Words by Jesse Montgomery herself, and program notes by Philip Husher on Jesse Montgomery's Coincident Dances. And now on to Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 3, a work lasting about 28 minutes. This is the piano concerto that Prokofiev introduced to the world on the Symphony Hall stage in 1921. Prokofiev's ties to Chicago go back to the summer of 1917 when local businessman Cyrus McCormick Jr., son of the farm machine magnate, met the 26-year-old composer Sergei Prokofiev while on a trip to Russia. Prokofiev was unknown to McCormick, but the composer recognized the distinguished American's name at once because the estate his father had managed owned several impressive international harvester machines. McCormick had been sent to Petrograd, formerly and now again St. Petersburg, by the State Department as part of a nine-man delegation called the United States Mission to Russia. 
Although the U.S. government did not care to have anything published about its itinerary or its plans, according to the New York Times, the objective was to secure Russia's ongoing role as a member of the Allies in World War I. McCormick had become a governing member of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in 1905, and he was unusually curious about music. He expressed an interest in Prokofiev's work, and he eventually agreed to pay for the printing of his unpublished Scythian Suite. He also encouraged Prokofiev to come to the United States and asked him to pick some of his scores that he could ship home to Chicago Symphony Orchestra music director Frederick Stock. McCormick wrote to Stock at once, saying that Prokofiev would be glad to come to Chicago and bring some of his symphonies if his expenses were paid, but not knowing myself the value of his music, I did not feel justified in taking the risk of bringing him here. After Stock received Prokofiev's scores, he replied to McCormick, There is no question in my mind as to the talent of young Sergei. McCormick could not have guessed at the time that he had unwittingly introduced Stock to one of the defining figures of 20th century music. Prokofiev made his debut with the Chicago Symphony the following season, playing his first piano concerto and conducting the orchestra himself in the American premiere of his Scythian Suite in Orchestra Hall in December 1918. But by then, Stock had resigned as music director over concerns about his U.S. citizenship. For more on that story and the issue of patriotism in American orchestras during World War I, see Music in a Time of War on page 6. The orchestra was splendid, Prokofiev wrote in his diary after the final rehearsal, but he was disappointed that Eric de Larmeter, who was taking Stock's place on the podium, didn't seem to know the score of the concerto, and so he simply took over the rehearsals himself. The appearance here of the young Russian Sergei Prokofiev at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra concert was the most startling and, in a sense, important musical event that has happened in this town for a long time, wrote Henriette Weber in the Herald and Examiner. Personally, he is middle-sized and blonde, somewhat gangling about the arms and shoulders, and entirely businesslike in demeanor, reported the journal. His business is his music while he is on the stage, and he would seem to resent even the time that it takes to bow. The music itself caused quite a stir. Russian genius displays weird harmonies, was the headline in The American. The music was of such savagery, so brutally barbaric, Weber wrote, that it seemed almost grotesque to see civilized men in modern dress with modern instruments performing it. By the same token, it was big, sincere true. The public loved it. Every man and woman there reacted to it, Weber continued, and Prokofiev was given a thundering ovation that at least in a slight degree expressed the tumultuous emotions he inspired. In Chicago, McCormick introduced Prokofiev to Cleofonte Campanini, director of the Chicago Opera, who asked the composer if he had written an opera, when Prokofiev explained that he had, but that the score for The Gambler was sitting on a shelf of the Mariinsky Theater back in Russia and would be difficult to obtain, Campanini hit on the idea of commissioning him to write a new opera for the Chicago company. That January, Prokofiev signed a contract to produce an operatic version of The Love for Three Oranges based on the Russian adaptation of the Venetian playwright Carlo Guzzi's Commedia dell'arte fairy tale to be premiered in Chicago. 
By March, citrus growers in Florida and California were fighting over promotion rights. One stated, this succulent and healthful brand inspired Prokofiev and is used exclusively by him in this opera and at home. Prokofiev expected to be back in Chicago the following winter for the premiere of The Love for Three Oranges, but while rehearsals were underway that December, Campanini suddenly died. The premiere was postponed, first for one year, and then because of financial disagreements, for yet another. Prokofiev finally returned to Chicago late in October 1921 to prepare for two of the most important premieres of his career, his brand-new Piano Concerto No. 3, which he would perform with the Chicago Symphony, and the opera. On December 16th, Prokofiev took a breath from opera rehearsals at the Auditorium Theater to appear in Orchestra Hall playing the concerto with Stock now back on the podium to Prokofiev's relief and delight. Altogether, one could not wish for a better orchestra, he wrote in his diary. Two weeks later, the opera opened. Both were warmly applauded and recognized as scores of significance, although in the end, the great third piano concerto has proven less perishable than the oranges. It remains one of the most popular scores of the 20th century. Although Prokofiev would later call these his two American pieces, the piano concerto was written in the French countryside on the coast of Brittany, most of it during a summer holiday in 1921, an unlikely pastoral setting for such a bustling urban piece. Like his first two piano concertos, the work was composed for his own hands, formidable and fearless at the keyboard. Prokofiev took his first piano lessons from his pianist mother. His great technical ability was apparent at an early age. He gravitated to the most challenging works. His concerto repertoire included Beethoven's Emperor, the first two by Rachmaninoff, and Tchaikovsky's popular First. He played earlier classical works with his own improvements. In 1937, just before Prokofiev's last American tour, Francis Poulenc still marveled at how his long, spatulate fingers held the keyboard as a racing car holds the track. Prokofiev's first two piano concertos, both written before he finished his degree at the St. Petersburg Conservatory, are bold, challenging scores. The flamboyant first, from 1911, was Prokofiev's earliest controversial work. He later called it footballish. The ultra-modern second, from 1913, left listeners frozen with fright, hair standing on end, according to a contemporary critic. Prokofiev had long wanted to write a new concerto and had, in fact, been collecting material for years. This would remain his characteristic compositional method, making sketches as ideas came to him at any hour of the day or night and saving them until they found a place in his music. The third piano concerto incorporates sketches gathered over a decade. The earliest ideas came from 1911. The E minor theme that opens the second movement was sketched in 1913 and was intended from the start as the basis of a set of variations. In 1916 and 17, Prokofiev wrote down the two main ideas with which he would ultimately begin the piece, as well as two variations on the 1913 theme. A string quartet begun and abandoned en route to the United States in 1918 provided two themes for the finale. 
So when Prokofiev sat down to begin his new concerto during the summer of 1921, he had already written most of the important thematic material. The score is a remarkable achievement, combining the brilliant, edgy momentum of Prokofiev's previous music with a haunting new lyricism. All three movements benefit from the interplay of both elements. The balance is carefully judged. The second movement is calm with fiery interludes, the finale just the opposite. The forms are essentially those that have ruled piano concertos since Mozart's day. The first movement is a sonata allegro, the second a theme and variations, the last a rondo. But the sonority and style are what we now recognize as Prokofiev's own. The Chicago premiere went well. The audience was highly enthusiastic, and Prokofiev was called back to the stage three times. The reviews were cordial, but largely uncomprehending. A plum pudding without the plums. And most of the critics preferred the classical symphony, which was also on the program. The concerto quickly became Prokofiev's calling card. Within a year, he played it in London, Paris, and New York. In Chicago, there was less understanding than support, the composer later recalled. In New York, there was neither. It was the first work he recorded in 1932, a blazing document of his fabled style and technique, and it was destined to become his most popular piano concerto. He would complete two others and a favorite landmark of 20th century music. Program notes by Philip Husher on Prokofiev's Piano Concerto Number no. 3. And now on to Schubert's Symphony Number no. 8, The Unfinished. The work lasts about 28 minutes. We don't know why Schubert never finished his B minor symphony. This has been one of music's great unanswered questions for more than a hundred years, and despite some intelligent speculation, we still come up empty-handed today. At least we know he didn't finish it. For many years, music lovers persisted in believing that the missing movements sat forgotten in some Viennese attic. On the other hand, Scholars no longer suggest that Schubert intended to write a two-movement symphony, giving the composer credit for a bold stroke that, for all his daring, is not his. The facts are scarce and mysterious, which has only heightened the intrigue over the years. There was no mention of this symphony made during the composer's lifetime. It lay buried like hidden treasure in Anselm Hüttenbrenner's cluttered study until the 1860s, more than 30 years after Schubert's death, when it was dusted off to take its place as number eight among the known Schubert symphonies. The full score, clearly written in Schubert's own hand, is dated 30 October 1822, Vienna, and signed with his characteristic flourish, Franz Schubert. The manuscript, headed Symphony in B Minor, includes two movements, a wonderful singing allegro moderato and a heartbreaking andante con motto, both so sublime that the unfinished nickname is all the more frustrating. On the back of the final page of the andante are nine measures of a scherzo, fully scored, followed by four blank pages. In the 1960s, Crystal Landon discovered a missing leaf that ought to have come before the empty pages, containing measures 10 through 20, and then stopping abruptly, as if Schubert had been interrupted mid-thought. A piano sketch of the symphony shows that Schubert had planned the entire scherzo and the beginning of a trio. 
We don't know what interrupted Schubert, but a number of theories have been proposed. This was, after all, a time of many unfinished instrumental works. From February 1818 through November 1822, he started and set aside three, possibly four, different symphonies. Late in 1822, Schubert contracted syphilis and began to suffer from depression and failing health. He was also nearly paralyzed by a growing awareness of Beethoven's extraordinary symphonic work, music that blazed new paths in an area in which Schubert felt the least assured. Schubert often struggled with the compositional process, even though it's true that a song once came so easily to him that he jotted it down fully formed on the back of a menu. Perhaps Schubert was trying to face down the giant using the language they both understood best. He was always too shy to contact Beethoven, even though they lived in the same city for years. When Beethoven was so deaf that he provided books for visitors to write down what they wanted to say, his nephew Carl mentioned in August 1823, they greatly praise Schubert, but it is said that he hides himself. The two men met only once, when Schubert went to visit Beethoven on his deathbed with Josef and Anselm Hüntenbrenner, the brothers who already had Schubert's unfinished symphony in their possession. When Schubert abandoned work on the B minor symphony, he gave it to Josef Hüntenbrenner probably in 1823 after ripping out the unfinished scherzo. The first nine measures remained simply because they were written on the back of the Andante. At some point, Josef gave the manuscript to his brother, Anselm, who shoved it in the back of a drawer. A Schubert score that remained in Josef's possession, music for Goethe's Claudina von Villabella, was used by his servants as kindling sometime in 1848. On March 8, 1860, in a letter to Johann Herbeck, an influential Viennese musician, Josef casually mentioned that Anselm possesses a treasure in Schubert's B minor symphony, which we rank with his great C major symphony, his instrumental swan song, and with all the symphonies of Beethoven, only it is unfinished. Herbeck would never forget the morning some five years later when he actually held the manuscript in his hands. The attempts to round off Schubert's score, as if two polished, magnificent movements were somehow unsatisfactory, began with the very first performance on December 17, 1865, when the finale of Schubert's third symphony was tacked on to ensure a rousing finish. Over the years, other endings have been proposed. In 1928, the Columbia Gramophone Company even considered hosting the competition for the best completion of the unfinished symphony. There have always been those who claim that Schubert actually finished the symphony, and as recently as 1942, it was suggested that Anselm Hüntenbrenner had lost the manuscript of the last two movements. Today, convinced by the evidence that Schubert's unfinished symphony was in fact never finished, we are more willing to accept the brilliance of what we have rather than long for what we do not. Imagine the joy of uncovering one of Schubert's true masterworks. Even Eduard Hanslick, as demanding and sometimes as nasty as any critic in the 19th century, quickly turned to butter when he reviewed the first performance in 1865. When, after the few introductory measures, clarinets 
and oboes in unison begin to sound their sweet song above the peaceful murmur of the violins. Then each and every child recognizes the composer, and a half-suppressed outcry, Schubert, buzzes through the hall. He has hardly entered, but it is as if one knows him by his step, by his manner of lifting the latch. We now know Schubert perhaps best of all by that sweet song, and there are generations of schoolchildren who may never forget those unforgettable words, This is the symphony that Schubert wrote and never finished, that eager music teachers have added to the lovely cello melody that follows. The pathos and beauty of this entire stretch of music is extraordinary, but even more remarkable is the way Schubert sustains the spell throughout the movement and on into the second. Schubert's sketches show that he originally wanted to end his first movement in B major, which would have broken the mood, but he thought better of it, leaving us instead in the dark resources of B minor. The slow movement, and it is only relatively slow because Schubert specifies andante con moto with motion, is in the unexpected key of E major, where he would again uncover great riches in the adagio of the C major string quintet. In this lovely movement, a few especially eloquent details stand out. The high-flying clarinet solo that gently sails over shifting chords and a wonderful moment of total stillness disturbed only by the octave call of the horn just before Schubert leads us back into the opening. And it is here, with this perfect andante, that we must stop. Schubert's plans for the third movement scherzo look promising. It begins with a strong theme, first played in octaves by the full orchestra. There is no telling what might have emerged had he polished this raw material into something as fine as the two movements we know so well. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Schubert's Unfinished, the Symphony No. 8. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. <laughs>